The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to be looking at the very end of this chapter now, as Kyle mentioned, for the fourth week, looking at this remarkable prayer that the Apostle Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians and, I believe, for us, and that we can learn from it. And uh, three weeks ago, I put a slide up, as you may remember, uh, of the city of Kathmandu, which is in somewhat of a bowl, and it was it, you can see the city in the slide, the picture, and then above it, a layer of of smog and uh, uh, air pollution and cloud, and then above that, majestic mountains, the Himalayan mountain range. And I desire to set that image in your mind as a somewhat of a parable of the ordinary Christian experience, of how we Christians can live our lives in a smog-covered haze, with our head down, drizzled on all the time, and not aware of the mountain of majestic experience of a sense of the love of God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit that is available for all of us. And that if we would just exert ourselves and and believe that there is a better kind of experience of Christ's love available for us through the Holy Spirit, the deposit guaranteeing our future inheritance in Christ, that we'll begin, begin to climb. And, and by, by the power of God, we will start moving up higher and higher a mountain of Christian experience to some rarefied air that we didn't even know existed and begin to breathe healthier in this parable that I'm using this illustration and have sights of the world that's coming in ways that will empower us for the mission God still has for us to do. And so this is my fourth and final week preaching. And I think for many of you this whole uh, theme has been new and unusual. Others have told me you've had these kinds of experiences. And that's been amazing for me. But you can see step by step Paul just taking the Ephesians and lifting them higher and higher and higher as he goes uh, through this text. Look at verses 14 and 15. Ephesians 3, Paul's prayer for the Ephesian Christians. He prays to the Father on their behalf. For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. So he has a view of the whole church of God here. Not just the Ephesian Christians. But he's kneeling and praying for them. Step 2, that God would strengthen the inner man of these Christian people. the, The inner being... Out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So there's this sense of strengthening through the Holy Spirit inside you. Step three, so that Christ would settle down in your hearts through faith. That you would have a a daily powerful experience of feasting with Christ. That you would just live with Christ. That he would settle down in your hearts through faith. Verse 17, step 4, that they would be rooted and established in love. You see that uh, again in verse 17, that you being rooted and established in love. When I preach that, a, a different picture of, the, of an oak tree and of a, of a vast building. Both of them a sense of, of rootedness, stability, strength, not being easily moved. 
but one of them more of a living picture of an oak tree with deep root systems sucking uh, nutrients and moisture from the subterranean uh, areas there and then growing and, and just flourishing like a, like a mighty oak tree or then a building, like Jesus said, built on a solid rock, as we sang earlier, immovable. Rooted and established in love, that you would have power, some translations just say be able, but I think the, the whole theme of power just pervades this text, and so that you would have power together with all the saints. This was something that could happen to all Christians, all over the world, all generations, we'll talk about that in a minute, but all Christians could have this kind of power that you would be able to grasp, to comprehend the infinite dimensions of Christ's love for you. That you had to actually have a sense of it. And that you would actually in some ways through your, through your reading of the scripture, through the power of the Holy Spirit, be able to travel in your minds to see the, the limits, and there are none, of Christ's love for you. How wide and long and high and deep. And to know that love that surpasses knowledge. Something that goes beyond anything you've ever experienced or could know. It's knowledge is part of it. It's not contrary to knowledge. It's just beyond knowledge. This love of Christ poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit, Romans 5, 5. That you would have power to grasp that, to know that love that surpasses knowledge. And here's the, the summit now of Christian experience that we're going to begin looking at today, along with the doxology. That you would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. That being the summit of Christian experience. The best you can have in this world. A foretaste of heaven. And Paul concludes this prayer with an astounding doxology, a beautiful doxology, which proves that we're not going too far in this, in this analysis. We're not going over the top, maybe pastor, you know, pushing this just a little too far. You can't push this too far. When you look at the doxology in verse 20 and 21, however high you think God can bring you in Christian experience, he can actually do immeasurably more than that. Verse 20, look at it. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all you ask or imagine. According to his power that is at work within us. And then you know, the only way we can finish this is just to worship. <laughs> to that God, to this God who can do immeasurably more. To him be glory in the church. And in Christ Jesus. Throughout all generations. Forever and ever. Amen. So now what kind of experience is Paul talking about here? What does he mean? What does he want to happen for these Ephesian Christians? I think his own experience that he describes in 2 Corinthians 12 is a sense of it, a picture of it. We're not necessarily going to have exactly what happened to Paul. He uh, clearly thought his experience of visions uh, was different than the norm. It set him apart as an apostle. But still, dear friends, brothers and sisters, less than we'll all have in heaven. Amen? So God can elevate us to this level. He says, 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 4, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. God knows. Was caught up to paradise. And he heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to talk about. 
it was just such an overwhelming experience of heaven, a foretaste of heaven, that he heard some things that he's not allowed to talk about with everyone else. And he's not, you can't put it into words and he's not allowed even to try. That's what is waiting for all of us in heaven. So that's an experience. Paul had this side of death. Or again, we have the experience of Stephen as he was dying, as he was being martyred, as the stones were killing him. He was being stoned to death. It said, but Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's an experience just before death that he had of what it's going to be like for him when he is escorted into heaven. Now we've looked week after week. This is our fourth week looking at this. At various testimonies of brothers and sisters in Christ. Who have had these kinds of experiences. One of the most moving that I read. Was uh, written by Pastor John Flavel. Who uh, lived in the 17th century. Around the time of John Bunyan. The Puritan pastor. He's not talking about himself. But another pastor friend that he knew. And that pastor friend was on a journey. He was traveling from point A to point B. And as he was traveling in England, uh, this is the account. Thus going on his way, his thoughts began to swell and rise higher and higher like the waters of Ezekiel's vision until at last they became an overwhelming flood. Such was the intentness of his mind. Such were the ravishing tastes of heavenly joys and the full assurance of his own future guarantee in them that he utterly lost all sight and sense of the world. And all the concerns thereof. And for some hours knew no more where he was than if he had been in a deep sleep upon his bed. Arriving in great exhaustion at a certain spring, he sat down and washed and drank. And earnestly desiring at that point that if it was God's pleasure, that might be his departing place from the world. Death had the most amiable face he could have imagined, except... The face of Jesus which made it so. And he does not remember. Though he believed himself dying. That he ever even thought of his dear wife. Or his, of his children. Or frankly any other earthly concernment. On reaching the inn. The, this influence still continued. Banishing sleep. Still the joy of the Lord overflowed him. And he seemed to be an inhabitant of the other world. Now he writes in that account, it's not written here in my sermon, but how at some point he felt the influence abating like an ocean tide going out and he never felt it again. Never happened again. But years later as he looked back he said it seemed to him to have been one of the days of heaven. Wow. <laughs> Has anything like that ever happened to you? Honestly? Is that even part of the uh, salvation package? Is that something we could ask God for? Well, that's the very point of these four sermons. That you would have a yearning for something like this. Maybe it would just happen once. Maybe, frankly, it would never happen. But still a greater elevation of your sense of the joys of heaven than you've ever had before. Still that is worth pursuing. Many other testimonies. Read one about Sarah Edwards, I've read from this pulpit before, how she felt like a dust speck floating in a beam of light. And that whole night said, I can't put it into words, but it seemed to me that one moment of that experience that night 
was greater than all the pleasure I'd ever experienced in my body in my entire life up to that point. It was just pure pleasure. Uh, this time of year at Christmas time, some of us that like classical music love Handel's Messiah. Perhaps you've heard the story about how it was composed in, I think, about three weeks. It was about an hour and a half of music uh, that's still being played centuries later, composed in a very, very short amount of time. And the story goes that he locked himself in his apartment and was just focused on this to the point that his servant, who was bringing food, was come back and most of the food wasn't touched. And this just kept ha happening day after day for this, these several weeks. Finally, the servant became so concerned that he kind of bashed in the door, didn't care if he got fired or whatever would happen, and saw Handel on his knees with tears coming down his face, streaming down his face. You know, he's the one that wrote the Hallelujah Chorus, all that, it's all part of the Messiah. Streaming down his face, and this is what he said. I think I did see all heaven before me and the great God himself. And he later added these words, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. So I'm not saying that members of our church might write the next Handel's Messiah, whatever's coming next. That was a gifting that God, but God gave him a vision of heaven, a vision of the greatness of God. Now the question that's in front of us is, should we seek such experiences? Again, John Flavel, the one who gave us that testimony of his, of his pastor friend, said this, ecstasy and delight are essential to the believer's soul. And they promote sanctification. They promote growth in Christ. We are not meant to live without spiritual exhilaration. And the Christian who goes for a long time without the experience of heartwarming will soon find himself tempted to have his emotions satisfied from earthly things and not as he ought from the Spirit of God. You're going to go after some thrill. You're going to go after some exhilaration, some ecstasy. And if you're not seeking it in Christ, you're going to seek it from the world. And so therefore, he says, because the Lord has made himself accessible to us in the means of grace, it is our duty and privilege to seek this experience from him in these means till we are made joyful partakers of it. Now notice that he makes a distinction between ecstasy and delight. Let me just say plainly, I don't know that most of us, if any of us in this room here, will ever have the ecstasy on this side, on this side of, it's, it seems to be rare. But you can have the delight. And you might say, well, what's the difference between ecstasy and delight? I, I would say it's the difference, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, between fe a feast and a meal. Now, I say you can't live without the meal. Uh, you can live without the feast, but if God wants to give you a feast, why would you refuse? <laughs> if he wants to greatly expand your sense of what heavenly joys will be like, why would you say no to that? And wouldn't it be worth seeking? The first comment. And he says that they're essential. You're going to seek some kind of exhilaration in something. If not in Christ, you're going to seek it in some worldly thing. When I uh, shared some of these things at the men's retreat, I gave the illustration from the movie Hunt for Red October. I don't know if some of you have seen that submarine movie years ago. And there's this submarine called the Red October, and uh, he's defecting to the West. It's a very powerful weapon. And Sean Connery plays a Roman, uh, Roman, uh, Russian uh, you know, it's Ameri Americans can't tell the difference between a Scottish accent and a Russian accent, so we're good. Um, and you just listen to that, and it works fine. And he's the Russian captain, and he's defecting. Well, the Russian Navy mobilizes to sink the Red October. And there's an attack sub at a climactic part of the movie that launches a, sub uh, a uh, torpedo right at the Red October. And they are able, through some maneuvering, to escape that 
torpedo, which is now active and acquiring, seeking something in the water to blow up. Now, that torpedo homing, seeking, like yearning for some big hunk of metal, is a picture of our souls. You can't stop that. That's how God made you. He made you for himself, to seek him. And if you're not going to seek exhilaration in Christ, you're going to find it somewhere else, in some idols. That's the point. So let's look at carefully at the verses. We've been moving slowly through it. This is the last sermon perhaps that I'll ever preach on Ephesians 3. And so I know we have marinated in this text, but it was intentional. Because these themes are unusual to us. These are things that we're not used to, and you can just read through it. It's like, oh, Paul's praying for the Ephesian Christians, chapter 4. But instead, I think for us to go carefully looking at it, and then we pick, we're pretty much at verse 19, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now, what does that mean, that you would be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God? Well, first of all, the NIV is the only one that uses this word measure. Most of the translations just say filled with the fullness of God. But I think the, the grammar in the Greek implies a certain proportionality. Implies that. And so you, that you would be filled proportionally as God is filled. Or as the NIV puts it, I think, well, to the measure of the fullness of God. All right, so what does this mean? Well, let me start with what it doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that we reach some kind of empty floating nirvana in which we finally come to realize that all of life is an illusion and that we are an illusion and that pain and pleasure are illusions. And this is a, a, a achieved by meditation on weird things like what's the sound of one hand clapping and things like that. That's Eastern meditation and mysticism. That's not what we're talking about. Neither are we talking about some Christian versions of that that seem to be atheological, contra-textual, not looking for anything from the Bible, just want an experience. It's not that. And being filled to the measure of all the fullness of God does not mean we become gods and goddesses ourselves. It doesn't mean that. The Mormons teach about Jesus, listen to this, what we are he once was, what he is, we may become. Friends, that's a heresy. There's an infinite gap between us and Jesus, essentially. He is God, and we will never be gods and goddesses. That's not what it means to be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. There are incommunicable attributes of God. There are things that are true of God and will never be true of us. Theologians call them incommunicable. We can't share these with God. He can't share these attributes with us. For example, God is eternal. He had no beginning, will have no end. We had a definite beginning. God is immutable. He never changes. We are changing all the time. Our sanctification is essential, constant change in us that we become transformed and made more like Christ. God is self-existent. He can say, I am who I am. And all existence derives its existence from God. Of us, we can say, as it says in Acts 17, in Him we live and move and have our being. So God is self-existent. God is omnipresent. That means throughout the vast universe, God is fully everywhere there is a location. Also seen to be the immensity of God. God's omnipresence and immensity are, are the same, really, I think. And we are not immense and we're not omnipresent and never will be. And God is omnipotent. All power in the universe is His. And we're going to talk about this in a moment. But we will never be omnipotent. 
So for Christians to be filled to the measure of the fullness of God does not mean these extremes. Neither is it mere kind of literary rhetoric where he's like kind of going exaggeration, going over the top to kind of make a point. Not at all. Frankly, the, the implication is anything you're thinking is undershooting the mark. Doesn't matter what you've understood about what Paul wrote in Ephesians 3. It's less than the experience he's talking about. All right, so what does it mean? Well, first, let's just ponder the fullness of God. How full a being is God? Don't misunderstand why God created the universe. God didn't create the universe out of emptiness and loneliness. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, wasn't lonely at all, but rather out of fullness, a display of fullness. So I love what it says in Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. He's a very full, pleased, happy being. God is filled with love. He is filled with joy. He's filled with power, filled with compassion. Do you remember that encounter that Moses had on the top of the mountain? And he said, now show me your glory. He just wanted an encounter with God. Now show me your glory. Exodus 34, verse 6. And he, God, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. Now listen to these words abounding in love and faithfulness. What does abounding mean to you? How about full of? Overflowing with love and faithfulness. That's our God. A river flows from God. Uh, actually, there's two pictures in the book, uh, in, in the scriptures, of a throne and a river flowing from the throne. One's in Daniel 7. And in Daniel 7, there's this image, uh, this vision of four terrifying beasts godless beasts that represent world empires coming one after the other. And in the center of it, there's this horn defying God representing, ultimately, I think, the Antichrist in Daniel 7. And then in the middle of it, there's this vision of God on his throne, high above all of that. And it says in Daniel 7, 9 and 10, his throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. Daniel 7, 10, a river of fire was flowing from the throne. That is a picture of terrifying wrath and judgment by God on the earth. But then you have a radically different picture at the end of the Bible. In Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life flowing clear as crystal from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So here's this throne and there's this river flowing from the throne. A river of life down the middle of the street of the city. So Paul is praying for us to have an overwhelming sense of the fullness of God and be filled ourselves with it. Filled with the joy that comes from being in his presence. Wouldn't you like that? Wouldn't you just love to stand in the presence of God and be filled with joy? Greater joy than you've ever had in your life. Psalm 1611 says, In your presence is the fullness of joy, eternal pleasures forevermore at your right hand. Wouldn't you just love that? To be in the presence of God and to be filled with pleasure and joy. Fullness of God. In Isaiah 6.3. The seraphim were crying to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Fullness. Shining, radiant with his glory. The new heaven and the new earth will be shining with, with the radiant glory of God. And so then for us, it would be to be filled with the Spirit. Like it says in Galatians 5, or yeah, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. 
the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, these things filling us like a, like a balloon, right? Just completely full. And you're like, I didn't think I could ever be this full, but you could be even fuller. If somebody had like powerful lungs blew even more air in there, you could be completely full and even be more fuller. And God can fill us to overflowing with the fullness of God. That's what he's praying for. Now, I think the key to all this is union with Christ. If you're not a Christian, you can't know this. It's only by union with Christ that we can experience this fullness. Why do we say that? Because it says in Colossians that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus. And it says in Colossians 2, we have received fullness in him. Our fullness comes from union with Christ. He's the vine, we're the branch. And that fullness can only come from union with Christ. So let me just stop and ask, is this true of you? Are you united with Christ by faith? Have you repented of your sins? Have you trusted in Christ as your Savior? And having had that, do you experience fullness in Christ? This is meant for self-evaluation as we read this prayer. Now, he finishes here with this magnificent doxology, finishing with worship as we must. Look at verses 20 and 21. Now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. It's an astounding doxology, and it's the only appropriate way to finish this amazing prayer. He's praying for the Ephesian Christians to have an amazing experience of the dimensions of Christ's love for them. The ultimate purpose of that is that we'll return it back to God in worship will be filled and say, oh God, what a good God you are. And praise him and worship him. That's what we were made to do. And he's praying this for the Ephesian Christians. And by extension, he's praying for every generation of Christian there has ever been since that first generation of Christians. Throughout all generations. So that includes us. We're included in all generations. And so he's praying that we would have this sense of the fullness of God. And not just once, but forever and ever. When God overwhelms us, we worship. This past Wednesday, 30 of us, I guess, gathered for prayer. 6 a.m. We're going to do it throughout December and throughout January. And if you couldn't make it last week, please come this week. If you can't make it at all, your schedule doesn't allow you to. I understand that. But if you can, please come. And it was a wonderful time. It wasn't one of those extraordinary times. But it was a sweet time of fellowship. And so, talk at the end of the sermon on the ordinary and extraordinary workings of the Spirit. But John Wesley writes in his journal, January 1st, 1739. Listen to this. Mr. Hall, Ingham, Whitfield, Hutching, and my brother Charles were present at our love feast in Fetter Lane with about 60 of our brethren. About three in the morning as we were continuing instant in prayer. Listen to this. The power of God came mightily upon us. Insomuch that many cried out for exulting joy and many fell to the ground. As soon as we were recovered a little from the awe and amazement at the presence of his majesty, we broke out with one voice. We praise thee, O God, we acknowledge thee to be the Lord. 
You see what happened? The, the love of God was poured out in power on a group of people praying. And they were knocked to the ground, many of them. And then they immediately returned it back up to God in worship. Now, I'm not promising anything like that will happen this Wednesday. But it might. And why couldn't we ask for God to do something like that? But even that's not ultimately the point. The ultimately the point is that we will be filled with the sense of the power of God. And so he wants to praise God. I mean, the doxology is simple. To God, the one who does all these great things, to God be the glory, both in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. That's what he's saying. To God be glory for all of this. Now look what he does, though, specifically. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. This is a clear statement of the omnipotence of God, isn't it? Look at it again. Now to him, to God, who is able to do immeasurably, infinitely more than anything you ask or imagine. So this is praise to the omnipotent God. Now, in verses 18 and 19, he was focusing on the immeasurable love of Christ. The infinite dimensions of the love of Christ. But now in verse 20, the infinite dimensions of the power of God. And God is able to do immeasurably more than anything you could, you could ask. You can't limit what God could do with your own brain. There's no limits to it. Many verses assert this. I'm not going to read them all, but let's, one's very familiar. Around this time at Christmas, we think about it. You remember how the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, remember? And told her an astounding thing. That she was going to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Though she was a virgin, she would be pregnant and give birth to a son. And he would be the son of David and the son of God. Mary didn't know how that was possible. How can this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel said this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. Isn't that awesome? A great, great statement. Nothing's impossible with God. Jesus said the same thing when a man came bringing his demon-possessed son and he brought him to his disciples. They couldn't do anything. And he said to Jesus, if you can do anything, could you please help us? <laughs> you remember what Jesus said? If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Do you not know who I am? Nothing is impossible for me. So the omnipotence of God is this. Anything that can be done by power, God can do. No, God can't make 2 plus 2 equal 5. Don't waste my time with that kind of stuff. Or no, God can't make a rock so big that even God can't pick it up. Have you ever heard these kind of things? Who comes up with these? They have too much time on their hands to be thinking. They should be worshiping God. No, power can't do those things. Anything, however, that power can do, God can do that. And immeasurably more than anything you think he can do. And the great obvious measure of the power of God is creation around us, right? Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the starry host. Who created all these? He who calls out the starry host one by one and gives them each a name. Because of his great power and his mighty understanding, not one of them is missing. That's a display of the power of God. Now, the text says he can do immeasurably more infinitely more. Paul is actually stretching the Greek language here, finding words to say infinitely, immeasurably, super abundantly more than anything you can ask or think. 
more than you can ask. You know, we're always tempted to worry about over-asking. Think about that. But actually the problem with us is we under-ask. Amen? We ask less than we should because we forget how powerful God is. And he's able to do immeasurably more than all you can think or I like imagine. You know, we hold back the request because we think that the person who might be giving to us will be offended by the size of the request. I think about, you know, maybe a missionary or a church planner or a Christian worker who's going and he's meeting with a wealthy Christian businessman and they're having lunch together and having a good time. But then it's, I, the businessman says, okay, I know we're not just here to have a good time. Did you have something you wanted to ask me? <laughs> well, yes, I was hoping you would partner with our church planning effort. Okay, what did you have in mind? Hmm. Interesting moment. At that moment, you might be thinking this, but you're going to ask for this. Because you're afraid of offending and over-asking. You can't over-ask with God. And I like what it says, that he's able to do immeasurably more than all you ask or imagine, the NIV says. All the other translations say think, and that's the right translation for the word. But NIV stretches a little bit, and I think in this case, it's fine. Look, all imagining is thinking, but not all thinking is imagining. So what then is imagination? What is, what is it when you're imagining? You're stretching your mind to the limit, like, a, like a, a fantasy author or something like that, thinking of a whole new world that no one's ever thought of before. Imagination, using their imagination. Well, our children, children use imagination. We adults don't need it as much anymore, so they're, no, use your imagination. Whatever you can imagine... God can do. He can do immeasurably more than all of that. So I like the NIV translation here. Now this verse, verse 20, can be taken out of context with no harm. What do I mean by that? Well, you can attach it to anything you could ever ask God to do. Ever. So what? Well, perhaps there's a loved one in a hospital with a very serious illness. As a matter of fact, the diagnosis is very dire. You're able to take Ephesians 3.20 and say, God, you are able to do immeasurably more than anything I could ask or even imagine. Please heal my loved one. Now, we know God may not heal, but we're stretching our mind to think of his omnipotence. God can do anything. Or, or you might have a situation that you're in financial trouble, or you need a job, or a company you own is struggling. Could be some kind of an economic issue and you're able to bring that back to God and say, God, I know that you're able to do immeasurably more than anything I could ask or imagine. Would you please meet our need? You can do that. There's nothing wrong with that. Usually want to take verses in context, talk about that in a moment, but, you know, perhaps you're in an imminent danger. Maybe you're out boating and the, and the boat overturns and, you're, and you feel like you're drowning and, you, and, you're, and you're, you've got very little strength and you can call out, God, I know you can do immeasurably more than all I ask or imagine. You might just want to at that point say, help, save me, because you don't have time to quote Ephesians 3.20, but you know what I mean. It's in the back of your mind. God can do it. Or maybe there's a tornado bearing down on your community. Or a hurricane. Or some other thing. And you're saying, God, deliver us. Or perhaps, like the call is, you're a missionary living in a city. And you're seeking to reach them. Several million people with the gospel. And you're able to gather together those that are laboring with you. And say, God, you're able to do immeasurably more than all we ask. Or imagine, please reach this city. Even use us to do it. So all of that's fine. But in context, it's very powerful too. We've been talking about the, the Ephesian Christians having a sense of Christ's love for them, poured out into their hearts by the Holy Spirit. 
a, a sense so great that it gets to this level of being filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And actually God can do immeasurably more than anything you could ask in this area of experiencing Christ's love for you. That's the verse in context. And he ends up with praise. To God be the glory. Verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. This God, his power brought to bear according to his power that is at work within us. That power brought to bear so that he would get the glory in the church. That's the point of all of this. That God would be glorified in the church. That we would be living stones that radiate with a glow from within inside. That really, having learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, we're actually buoyantly hope-filled saying, heaven is infinitely better than anything I'm going through now. I consider that my present sufferings aren't even worth comparing with what's going to come to me. You're so radiantly filled with hope in Christ. To God be glory in the church. That the church would shine with, with light in this dark world. And in Christ Jesus. Because all glory comes through Christ. That's what he's praying for. So, what application can we take for this? Well, the application would be that we would seek this experience. That we would seek a sense of the goodness and the glory of God. I've already mentioned if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer, I yearn that you would come to Christ. That's what the purpose of this season is. That's what the purpose of this sermon is. That you would know the forgiveness of sins that only Christ can give. Jesus shed his blood on the cross for sinners like you and me. Trusting in Christ, not by works, but by simple trust. All forgiveness of sins for you. But if you are a Christian, I'm asking that you would seek a far greater experience of God's love poured into your heart than you've ever had before. It's something that God would do to you. It's not something you can earn. I think there are ways that we can prepare for it. I've said it now for, this is my fourth week saying it. Through personal holiness, putting sin to death, because God is jealous and he will not come and bless us if we're willfully sinning. And then even setting aside some things that are good pleasures for a time, it's called fasting, could be from food, could be from electronic entertainment, could be from, you know, the big game, it could be from a hobby that you love. And you're saying, I want Christ more, I want to know him. You know, I'm going to set those things aside because I'm going to seek him. And you seek it through persistence. You know, you don't give God 20 hours and if he doesn't answer, then that's it. But you're going to persistently seek him. And you're not seeking an it like an, an, an disembodied experience, but you're seeking Christ. You want to know Christ and him better than you ever have before. And you seek it, as Flavel said, by the means of grace, by scripture, by meditation on scripture, and by seeking God in prayer. And you can just say that. Lord, what you did for Sarah Edwards, do that for me. I want to be a speck floating in a sunbeam. <laughs> I would love <clears throat> to be able to see heaven open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, if you wanted to do that for me. I would love to have a foretaste of heaven at whatever level you give me. I would love that. And I want to have the ordinary workings of the Spirit, but I'm asking for the extraordinary workings too. So I would say that. I want to emphasize that he may never do any ecstatic thing in any of our lives, but we can seek him. But the ordinary ministry of the Spirit is delightful. 
And what he will do is he will give you peace and joy and confidence in your Christian life, a sense of security that you are his, a greater sense of assurance, a greater sense of mission in the world, of works he wants you to do, greater power in doing them. Those are things that he promises for us. Those are the ordinary workings of the Spirit. And that may be all we get, and that's infinitely, amply fine. Or he may give us vastly beyond that. So I would say, seek him. And if you can, come to prayer on Wednesday morning at 6 a.m. Close with me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the study that we've had these four weeks in Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. Lord, it's been magnificent. It's been challenging. Father, I pray that you give us strength for the journey. Give us strength to pursue you and seek you as we've never done before. Give us strength to experience the love of Christ poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Help us to know that. And give us power to reach our community with the gospel. Give us power to reach lost people with the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray that this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.